live. Welcome to another episode of the Black Menaces podcast. I am your host, Nate Bird, and I'm here with my co-host today. We have someone different, but another one of the Black Menaces I'm sure y'all are familiar with. Kenithia, go ahead and say hey to the people. Hey, guys. It's Kenithia. Glad to be here today to be a co-host for the first time, actually. Yeah, we're super excited. You've been on the podcast before, but you haven't been a co-host yet. So we're looking forward to that. And we have an amazing guest today that we're very excited to introduce y'all to. And we'll talk a little bit more about her. But Dr. Jennifer Noble, will you please just introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I am Dr. Jen or Jennifer Noble. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist here in Los Angeles. Um, I focus on teens, so I see mostly teens in my private practice for therapy but I see all marginalized populations. So it's young adults, older adults, but um, anybody that's marginalized. So usually uh, minoritized, you know, racial groups, um, LGBTQ. And then uh, as you know, one of my main focuses is mixed race, um, marginal identity identities. <clears throat> Perfect. Thank you. And we're super excited to, to learn more about the work that you do um, and have done up to this point. But before we get into that, you know what it is. We got to have our menace moment. Um, and so I chose one that I feel like fit the theme of today pretty well. Um, and so the, the woman that I chose to highlight today for our menace moment is Dr. Mamie Phillips Clark. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jen, I'm sure you know her and feel free to, uh, to weigh in at any point if I miss something. Um, just a brief overview of Dr. Clark. She was a social psychologist who focused on the development of self-consciousness in black preschool children. Uh, she was born and raised in Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, and she was born October 18th, 1917. Her father was a respected physician from the British West, in British West Indies, uh, and her mother often worked alongside him where she could, even though she was not uh, trained as a doctor. Um, and then, you know, because of that, di that dynamic within her family, her younger brother actually went on to become a dentist. So um, that was kind of cool. Uh, she attended segregated schools all throughout her childhood and described her education as deficient in many substantive areas. But she also said that overall, she enjoyed her childhood and considered it to be a privileged childhood, given that, um, you know, she had a doctor in, the, in her family and uh, was just kind of able to, to enjoy life as a child. Uh, she graduated from Langston High School, although it was very uncommon for black students to, to graduate at that time. Uh, she was offered scholarships to Fisk and Howard University, uh, which are both, um, they're both, uh, well-known HBCUs, uh, and she enrolled in Howard at, uh, in 1934, and there she went on to earn a bachelor's in math and physics and also a master's degree in psychology. Uh, during the time at Howard, she met her husband, Kenneth Clark, and they ended up eloping um, while they were students there. Uh, and she's actually best known for the study that she did with her husband on racial identity in young children, uh, known as the Doll Studies. Um, in these studies, and there was a lot that went into them, but the overall uh, gist of the, of the studies was they presented young children, preschool age, maybe a little bit older, with uh, dolls. And the dolls were, were black dolls or African-American dolls and white dolls, Caucasian dolls. Um, and they just asked them different questions about those dolls, asked them, you know, which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Which doll is the pretty doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? Which doll do you look like? You know, questions like that. And they found that the children were very aware of their racial identity. And they tended to associate more negatively with the black doll and more positively with the white doll. Dr. Noble, did I get that right? Does that sound pretty accurate? Yeah, you, you got it. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So that's just kind of the general. If you want to learn more about the doll studies, um, you can always look those up and, and read them. Um, and they, you know, they had a significant impact on some of the racial uh, identity studies that are done today. Um, but later, Dr. Clark, or I guess before that she wasn't Dr. Clark yet, but she went on to become a doctor by earning the first uh, PhD in experimental psychology by a black woman ever. And she did that at Columbia University. Um, and, you know, although she faced significant discrimination after being in school, um, had difficulty finding work, um, you know, at different places uh, because of her race and also because of her, her gender, uh, she continued to make a lasting impact. And those studies are known today. They've been replicated a few different times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, the, I actually wrote a paper on those studies when I was in, in school at BYU, you know, studying psychology. And so that definitely had an impact on me. And she continues to make a positive impact on the world because of the studies that she did and, and uh, with her husband. And she died uh, August 11th, 1983 in New York City. But uh, that is a, a very short, there's obviously a lot more that goes into it, but that is a very short overview about Dr. Clark, uh, Dr. Mamie Phillips Clark. Uh, Dr. Noble, is there anything else that you wanted to share about Dr. Clark or maybe impact she's had on you? Um, no, she, well, she's definitely had an impact. Um, I did not know the British West Indies part, so you added some information. But um, okay. I would say the only thing I would add is that that study was instrumental in um desegregating schools. So that was like one of the bigger impacts of it and probably one of the reasons why it was replicated so often um, because it showed the impact on self-esteem when you separate folks um, because these kids were able to see like, wait, all the stuff they have is better. And then if we're over here, maybe we must be worse. And I sure wish I was them and now I don't like myself. And so that, that kind of, um, you know, like I said, it just became support to say, this is why everybody should go to school together. So, you know, it was the beginning of something. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Very influential. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's also pretty amazing because not too many studies from that time still hold a lot of water today, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when it comes to psychology, because a lot of the things that they believed about that time period uh, were very different. So for the fact Mm -hmm. that 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 study still, you know, holds some significance, you know, 50, 60 years later is also very important to note. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but with that, I want to go ahead and introduce you properly so that we you know we can uh, you know get get the uh, the audience to know you a little bit better. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Dr. Jennifer Noble or Dr. Jin is a licensed psychologist, lover of adolescents, and a coach for parents of mixed race children. She is the creator of the Mixed Life Academy, an online coaching community for parents of mixed race kids, helping them raise confident, resilient children. She has a private practice in Los Angeles where she works with teens, their parents, women of color, and other marginalized groups. She taught collegiate level psychology for 15 plus years, and her passion for identity freedom and the mixed race experience are fueled by her lived experience as an African-American and Sri Lankan Tamil woman. Did I say that right? Uh-huh. Tamil. Mm-hmm. Tamil. As a Sri Lankan Tamil, Tamil woman. So yeah, without further ado, Dr. Jennifer Noble, say hello to the audience once more. Yes, thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Glad to be Perfect. here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been, uh, we planned this probably a, a month and a half ago. So super excited to have you on. Um, but, you know, wanted to ask just to get started, what was it that that kind of inspired you to to become a psychologist with your specific focus? Yeah, well, you know, it's a question that people ask me often. And honestly, it's it's something that I, I guess, decided I would do pretty young, like before I even got to high school, I kind of landed on 
being a child psychologist and um, I, I just didn't change it. Um, I remember being, you know, in junior high and some of my high school years, I just was, I guess it's kind of a common story, but a lot, a lot of teenagers feel like this where people come to you and talk to you about things. But for me, I was always noticing um, people around me and very fascinated by people's stories. So a lot of my peers would just share things with me without me even asking. Um, and so I kind of just started to learn like, wow, there's a lot of teenagers out there that go through a lot of stuff. You know, I just heard about people's parents or, you know, family members who, you know, committed suicide in, in front of this, you know, my peer or just different mm -hmm. things. And I just remember not being alarmed. I think most people would be like, oh my gosh. And, oh, that's so sad. And, but I remember just being like, wow, like, and then what happened, <laughs> you know? And so kind of just really fascinated by the stories and the experiences. Um, around that time, I know I wanted to be a pediatrician. So I would often talk about wanting to be a, a you know, a doctor. And I think uh, my mom makes the joke that somehow one day she was telling me, I guess we were looking at something with bodily fluids. I don't know what it was, but she was like, well, you know, you're going to have to deal with that if you become a doctor. And I was like, what? And I think she said soon after that, I was like, I'm going to be a child psychologist. Mm. And so <laughs> it went from pediatrician to child psychologist. Um, but since then, I mean, once I actually got into undergrad, um, I took a couple psychology classes and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I really do like this. And then in graduate school, it was very clear to me that I wanted to work with kids and teens. So all of my internship and any kind of choices I had with getting clinical work, I always chose that population. So um, I just really, you know, and even outside of my psychology work, I've always done, you know, work with teens, whether it be through like volunteering um, in different types of organizations. Um, but I just really enjoy that age, that age group, um, the things that they say and the things they think about. So that hasn't gone away. I love that. I love that. So could you tell us a little bit about, uh, all right, Kenithi, were you going to say something? Um, well, yeah, I just had a question, like a follow-up question about how did you specifically get into the sector of like working with the marginalized community or was it just like that? you just worked in an area where it was just more mixed race children or like there was just more marginalized people in the community there that you ended up working with those type of children more? Well, you know, I started with, um, you know, it was, I guess early on, it was always important to me to kind of address cultural aspects. So even in graduate school, I had an emphasis area that was called multicultural community psychology. And so we took a lot of classes that taught us about, kind of what to look for and what to expect in um, certain either cultural groups like racial or ethnic cultural groups, but also sexual orientation, um, religion, et cetera, like even immigrant status, income level. So I was always interested in like cultural differences. Um, and so I purposefully chose to work with like low income folks of color with all of my clinical work. And so that mostly being in Southern California, it was a lot of African-American and Latino kids um, and then a sprinkling of some of the other groups in there. And then as I continued that work, when it got more time for my private practice, I kind of realized, you know what? I've encountered a lot of, you know, mixed race teens in some of my work. Um, I used to work for a nonprofit for 
quite some time, probably over 15 years. And that nonprofit served uh, mixed race people, interracial couples. So even through that work, I was realizing, you know what? If this group of people needed to get therapy, I'm not sure where they would go or, you know, I don't know that many people. And so that's when I started to add that focus of like, well, you know what, then I should do it because I'm already familiar with kids and I already, you know, look at marginalized populations. I've already done research on mixed race groups. And so it made sense to just be um, a provider as well for, you know, for therapy. So that's kind of how that went stepwise. Yeah. It's a great initiative to start too. If you don't do it, who else will, you know? Yeah. That's a great initiative that you started. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So if you would, could you tell us a little bit about some of the, like the nuances of growing up uh, mixed race? You know, you mentioned that you were African-American and Sri Lankan Tamil. Could you just kind of tell us like, what were some of like the, the nuances uh, of growing up um, with those two different cultures and, and things like that? You know, it's interesting The the nuances, especially early on were things were normal to me. I mean, it was just my family, you know, those are my parents and, any kind of family function I had, it wasn't different or, um, I don't know, surprising to me. It was only until I met other people who were then like, what? Oh, then I started to kind of look back at my family in a different way. Like, oh, so does everybody's family not do this? Like, is this outside of the norm, you know? So um, the the nuances were more, at least the way that I, I like to look at it, um, the nuances that I had to deal with were societal misunderstanding or societal questions, ignorance, you know, curiosity, um, and having to have a, a, a place and the words to explain it to them. Something that was normal to me, I needed to help them understand now. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so what would be um, some of those things that you had to explain to people? Um, it usually was just like, oh, is that your, you know, I, I don't, I look like more like one of my parents. So I don't look very much like my mom. So then a lot of people are like, oh, is that your mom? And how is that possible? And, you know, all those kind of questions where it's sort of like, well, if, if you know how childbirth works, it makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you know how genetics works, you know, um, I think people, you know, it's, it was something like that. Because if you really look at a lot of families, even if, everybody is the same racial group. There's sometimes one kid that looks exactly like one parent and then the other kids mm -hmm. look very different, but we don't really question that the same way. So it was a lot of questions like that. Um, there were quite a lot of questions around um, just Sri Lankan culture because a lot of people don't know Sri Lankan culture. They don't know where Sri Lanka is. Um, and so that you know was often something I would explain a lot. Um, and then, of course, as you, I got a little older in adolescence, the questions began to be more like um, uh, under the framing of which one would you choose? So, oh, oh, you're, you're two things. OK, well, which one are you more and which one are you more like and which one do you feel mm. like? All those kind of things. And it was really kind of like, oh, this is an interesting like line of questioning. Yeah. And I'm not sure that I'm able to answer it, you know, sufficiently for whoever's asking me because they usually ask with an idea in mind already, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those were, those were most common questions. I think that um, I remember 
either thinking about later and trying to be like, hmm, why did someone ask me that? Why do they keep asking me that? You know, that's those kind yeah, of yeah. Okay, gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. And when you were asked that question, did you find that like was it coming from a space of like people were genuinely curious? Or like when you said um that they already had that preconceived notion, did you think it was like out of malice sometimes? Oh, oh yeah, the whole gamut. Yeah, definitely the whole gamut. I think um, it, it was probably not um, malice. I would say that's a little bit less, but there was definitely um, microaggression disguised as curiosity because there was already a, a view and an expectation um, and then sort of asking the question to verify what they already thought, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, it's just kind of like someone saying to former president Barack Obama, well, where'd you learn how to be so articulate? Almost yeah. like yeah. most people aren't. So how, you know, how did you do it? So those kind of questions where you hear the underlying message, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you, did you ever feel like, you had to choose or were you always kind of at peace with where you were? Or did you ever feel like I have to choose one or the other to, to fit in or to meet a certain, you know, expectation? Yeah. I didn't feel like I had to choose. Um, but I did feel like I was presented with a certain lived experience. So even though I was sort of, I'm thinking of much younger, maybe like elementary, like I said, I kind of knew who my family was. I knew where everybody was from, like all that kind of stuff. But I started to realize on my school campus, I was seen a certain way. And so that shaped some of my experiences and it shaped how I knew other people saw me. Because when I walk down the street, everybody sees an African-American woman and that's fine because you know that's, that's what I am. But I'm also something else which they don't always see. And so mm -hmm. I just, it's sort of like, it wasn't a, a choice, but it was an understanding of like, all right, this is how you see me. And that's cool. Like, maybe we can lead with that. Or I, I'm going to end up learning a lot more about this experience because everybody sees me this way. You know, I, I don't I don't get interacted with um, as if I was a South Asian. So I don't know how to say how people might ask me questions or interact with me because they don't see me that way. You know what I mean? Even though mm -hmm. I still am. So, you know, just a lot of things like that where it's, um, I learned very quickly. I always tell this story, but I was, you know, playing at recess and some of my friends came running up to me and they're like, Jen, you know, Jen, you, your brother's hurt. Something happened to your brother. And I remember being like, what? And they're like, yeah, he's over there. You have to go. He fell or, you know, I don't know what it was, but something happened to him. Mm -hmm. And then my mother was like, I don't have a sibling. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then. <laughs> And then I realized, like, oh, another black kid fell. Got it. All right. Uh, I see what we're doing here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I and have how, Go ahead. How old were you when that happened? Ah, I must have been 10, 11. No, yeah, 10, 11, something like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and wow. they meant, you know, they meant well, but mm -hmm. you can see what they were doing in their mind is they were like, I went to a, a school that was, you know, had very few black students anyway. So then it was sort of like, well, there's a black student. She's a black student. They must be siblings. I'm like, really? Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I've definitely gotten that. Just a couple of weeks ago, 
a couple of my friends who look nothing alike, except that they have like a similar complexion. They don't look anything alike. They were walking together and somebody asked them if they were twins. And I was like, nope, not twins. Not at all. They just have the similar skin color. No. So, and that that was adults, full grown exactly. adults. So. Oh, no, I, I can I can one up your adult story. I, oh, come on. Um, Let's hear it. Yeah. I Like I said, I taught at a community college out here for about 17 years. And I shared an office with another African-American woman. Now, you just have to picture, I'm about 5'5". Five, five, She's probably five eight, so not the same height. Right. She's super slender, like a marathon runner, because that's what she does. She likes to run. Um, she had dreadlocks, okay, um, and her whole face looks different than my face. Can I tell you that almost all the years that we taught there, somebody was confusing us for each other. Someone would come up to me and ask me something that was applied to, you know, her. And vice versa. I mean, you would think, how many years have we both been here and you still can't tell us apart? You know, yeah. and we don't even we don't look alike, you know. Right, completely yeah. different looking. And I mean, there's a big difference between having your natural hair out and having your natural hair in locks. Like there's <laughs> two completely different things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. from a you know, maybe I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but from a psychological perspective, why do you think it is that people tend to do that, tend to, you know group people of color together, uh, associate them in a certain way. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's, it's just what we all as humans do. I mean, we can fault other people, but all three of us do it as well. It's, it's a way to make our, you know, a little simplifying for the brain to, if I can classify you, then I know how to interact with you, or maybe I know what to expect of you. Um, and so we all do that. I mean, we, we do it in the grocery store with food. You know, we go to the section that's like fruits and we might see fruits that we recognize, but then because something else is right next, to it, we're like, Oh, is that a fruit? I never had that fruit before. And, you know, maybe we learn, Oh, okay. Is this in the same category or how is it different? How is it the same? But we all have to start somewhere until we can really kind of um, shift those categories. And so when your category system in your mind is not exposed enough, it becomes really easy to generalize and group people together that really shouldn't be grouped together. Um, that's a psychological piece that doesn't include like the humanity of it. But the truth mm -hmm. of it, if I were to add to it, it's that so many minoritized people are made to be invisible. So you're not taking the time to actually see the person you're just kind of like oh uh dark brown skin uh that hair oh they must all be in the same group i'm not even going to bother to try to you know what i mean like so mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of groups that get that applied to them i think asian americans definitely can experience that as well where they feel like you know strangers come up to them and think they're the other asian american and when you look at them you're like they don't look alike the same situation but it's that invalidation and that lack of humanizing of a person to really be like, ah, you are a separate individual. Let me, you know, let me get mm. to know. That, that's the way I look at it anyway. Okay. Yeah. I love that. That's very interesting. I love, I love hearing that perspective because it, it kind of provides some, some extra, you know, perspective. Mm. Can you, did you have something you were going to say? Mm -hmm. And I agree. I definitely, I do love that perspective and getting that understanding. Um, I think me too. We all have experienced like ways where we can, 
be better in that type in that um, instance in that type of situation, which leads to the next question about like how can we learning and knowledge and information is the best um, tool. So, what are some mixed conceptions you can tell us about that people might have about mixed race people and families, so that we can know how to um, combat them in the future? Yeah, um, I think there's some. Gosh, there's so many misconceptions. Um, but I think a top one is probably that uh, a mixed race person chooses to identify with one group only, um, or you know that they're that that would be one that they probably choose to just identify with one, most likely the one that they look the most like. That's the expectation that other people have. And mm -hmm. so when we meet someone, um, you know, we could say maybe like a Barack Obama, we can say, oh, OK, you're black. Right. And and we all expect the Barack Obamas of the world to be like, yep, yes, I am. You know, and and we don't really give them permission to say, well, actually, you know, um, actually we judge them for it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's that there's a common mis misconception that almost especially if this mixed race person has a black parent that the healthy um proud way to identify is to identify with black first or black only um and that any other listing of your background is somehow a denial of or a rejection of um blackness and, and that becomes problematic because it puts this mixed race person in a bind where mm -hmm. they're risking losing connection to a group that they might strongly feel connected to, but then they're also risking this idea of denial of a truth, denial of family. Um, sometimes they feel like, gosh, it's just a lie. It's, it's just not true if I say this one thing, you know? So that's a common misconception. Um, I think the flip of that misconception would be that mixed race folks are all confused, you know, oh, they're, they're probably going through an identity crisis, you know, they're doing this, this one day, and then the next day they said they were this, and they don't know who they are, feel bad for them, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, when really the crisis, quote unquote, is because society presents only these five classic racial boxes and you're supposed to fit into one. Mm. And so mixed race people are, if you really pay attention to the things that mixed race people either are frustrated about or even complain about, it often comes back to being expected to fit into these five boxes and, and not really being allowed to be a member of more than one box at the same time. Mm. Um, that is a tough concept for society to deal with right now. Um, I shouldn't say right now, forever, um, but it's, it, it, causes, it causes a lot of conflict and it causes a lot of, um, you know, a lot of rejection. And then for, you know, the aftermath of rejection from anybody is, you know, loneliness, sadness, you know, uh, shame, self-hatred, all those things can come out when someone faces that much rejection simply for just trying to assert who they are, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That, that makes and sense. Would you say that like, um, it happens more so like if 
say like some a lot of a lot of mixed uh, children well the mixed children I grew around they were usually they usually were around just one side of their family and would you say that presents itself more than or less than or it's more or what would you say that presents itself more it's a great point because I think what you're talking about is cultural exposure so mm -hmm. cultural exposure is just so important for identity development so right now I work with parents of mixed race kids and essentially I'm addressing the very question that you're trying to answer because a lot of parents who are raising mixed race kids, life happens, right? Sometimes couples break up or there's a divorce or maybe uh, the couple has to move far away from the rest of their extended family or maybe they choose um, as a family to live in a neighborhood. I mean, this is Mixed race people and um, monoracial people deal with this all the time, that the, the family, as they become more socially mobile, they want to live in a safe, quote unquote, safe neighborhood with, quote unquote, good schools and, you know, nice houses. And many times those are predominantly um, dominated by one particular group, many times white, maybe might be white, Asian. Um, and so you are prevented, depending on the background of the family, from having the diverse exposure. And so to your point, yes, there are a lot of mixed race kids who don't have cultural exposure. And so maybe they have um, grown up around predominantly white institutions in neighborhoods, uh, churches, community centers, sports, everything. And so for them to then, you know, claim some other aspect of their background it might be very difficult. It might pose an inner difficulty for them because they're like, ooh, can I say it if I've just never been around this group? And I, I wouldn't even know some of these, you know, cultural, the, the shared cultural knowledge that we have. I just didn't get it. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think sometimes with those uh, situations, I certainly have had a couple clients. Um, one that I'm speaking of, uh, thinking of is a woman who, Actually, yeah, I think she had a European-American parent and an African-American parent. And she grew up around all white environments. Like I said, you know, sports, school, church, everything. And she knows who her other side of the family is, but she did not have that opportunity to interact and like, you know, just be loved on by a grandmother, you know, all those kind of things. And so it really... Um, impacted how she navigated identity. Um, she wanted to have more connection, but was really grieving the lack of connection, you know, that she had growing up. You know, there's a lot of grief, a lot of sadness, because it wasn't her choice. You know, she was a kid. Mm -hmm. yeah. She's like, I didn't choose to live here. But as I got older, once she hit like 18, 19, she was like, oh, shoot, y'all kept me from so much that I want to know. Mm. You know? And, and we see that with so many groups. I mean, you can see, um, you know, Mexican-American families today where the kids are like, I wish I knew Spanish. I wish we went back. I wish we did this. I wish we ate this food. You wanted me to be American, but now I am longing to know so much about my culture and, and you kind of didn't let me get it. So I, yeah. I think it is possible to see that struggle a little bit stronger. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like you said, with, with some of the people you might've known that grew up 
without much exposure. Yeah, it makes it harder. Mm -hmm. And I feel, I remember growing up with this one particular girl. I remember, I never, I personally never understood because she was black presenting. She was um, half white, half black. She mm -hmm. was black presenting. And mind you, I was like in middle school, high school. And I was like, and I never understood like some of her problems because I was like, because she personally like in middle school, high school, we were saying the N word and she didn't want to say it. I was like, but you're black. I don't understand why you can't say it. You know, like now I think back, I'm like, wow, let me, goodness, can you just sit down? But I was like, it was really common. Like I yeah. just never personally understood like what, what, how she, yeah. how she processed life because she did grow up around her, the, she was adopted by a white, her mm -hmm. white, uh, a white father, but she lived with her white mother. So she oh. just was raised around white people. Right. So she just right. was never comfortable with that. And it never made sense to me, but we still became like really good friends and all that. But it did take a little, it was a learning curve for me, I know. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And then the flip would also be true where you could have that same peer um, who, let's say, had a lot more cultural exposure to African-American, you know, if, if it's the same mix, let's say. So they had a whole bunch more exposure to African-Americans, but they did not look, you know, they didn't present as a black person, but they want to mm -hmm. walk know around school and be like yeah girl you know and everybody's like wait why are you saying that and they're like what do you mean i i know what i am and i know who my parent is and people are like but you don't look it so you can't mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's that's another uh i would say double bind or misconception is that if you are gonna you know assert it you better look at the way we think we you should look it and then if you don't we're going to give you trauma, you know, dr drama about that as well. So it's, you can see there's like a no win with all the scenarios I've given. That's what it seems like. I love it, yeah. And, you know, I, I will say I've definitely found myself on the, uh, the administering end of the, I guess, I don't know, I call it the one drop mentality where it's like, oh, well, you look black. So you must obviously be a black person. I'm going to treat you like a black person, yeah. but it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. Where it's, yeah. it's very nuanced. You know, you may identify with your blackness and you may also identify with your whiteness and that like creates a different, you know, um, yeah. dynamic within yourself. And so, yeah, it, I, I can imagine it would be very difficult to, to feel one way and then be treated another way and not really have anybody validate you. And I've definitely been guilty of, of invalidating people's experience. It's something that I'm still learning how to do. Mm -hmm. So this is an important discussion for me to have too. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, you yeah. know, I wanted to oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I think it's really powerful for you to say that. And I was just gonna say the only solution I could present for that struggle, you know, when the desire is to kind of, oh, well, you look that, so you just must be that, or, you know, one drop somebody is to just add an and in there. Like, oh, you're black and something else. Like you don't have to take anything away um, by saying, oh yeah, you look black, so you're black. And there might be something else in there too. And I'm going to try to honor that, but it doesn't mean I have to change how I interact with you. I can still, you know, add you to my group and allow you to be in another one as well. Cause I think the problem with the one drop is, okay, leave that group and come over here. Now you can't be a part yeah. of that. Group anymore. Mm -hmm. so it's that, that and like allowing someone to be here and there because all of us are members of multiple groups at the same time. You know, I mean, it, when you look at intersectionality, it's, it's very clear, you know, we're all either your, your gender has it 
influence on your racial identity. So you can't just say, oh, we're all black. We all do this. No, because there's a different experience. If you're a woman, if there's a different experience, if you're a woman who also, who also, who also, who also, you know what I mean? So we yeah. got to add that and in there. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, what are some, like I, when it comes to to parenting and to raising mixed race children, you, we talked a little bit about what it's like outside of the home and how people are perceived. But when it comes to being in the home, what are some, I guess, do's and don'ts? I don't want to call them mistakes, but like what are some things that it might be good to include when raising someone who is mixed race? And then what are some things that might be good to like avoid doing? Yeah, I think um, I, I talk about this a lot, of course, I, and I definitely a lot with the parents that I work with, because this is a big question that they have. You know, I want to know the do's and don'ts. Um, one of the biggest, I guess, don'ts would be don't decide what your kid is for them. You know, I, I always say present the whole picture and then let their own development and their own life experience that will answer how they want to identify, you know, or, or especially with mixed race folks, it really is true for all groups, but because we're talking about mixed race folks and identity development, they can change how they see themselves and how they understand themselves over their lives. You know, just like we see with, you know, African-American identity development, there are different stages that we can go through understanding ourselves as, you know, um, African-American folks, the same thing for mixed race folks, where maybe that kid in middle school is like, gosh, I don't know. I don't know if I can identify with this. Maybe I'll maybe I'll just go with this side of the family because that's what I know the most. And as they grow a little bit more, that shifts when they get to college and they meet more people. Maybe that shifts again. Um, so the the do for me is to present to your child. This is their whole background. Um, always lead with that. And then if they come home one day and they go, you know, let's say this is a kid that is, you know, like me, we'll just say, the, you know, black and Sri Lankan. And the goal would be for both the parents to be like, well, you know, you're black and Sri Lankan, you're black and Sri Lankan, you know, always saying the both. And then at some point, if I come home and say, you know, as a black teen, I, this and that, you go, okay, uh, yeah, right. Okay. You know, just sort of like, that's what's salient for you right now. I'm not going to try to correct you. I'm going to notice that, okay, clearly something about your lived experience and the way you're seeing yourself is presenting itself in this way. That's fine. Cause that's still true. It's not like it's not true. Now, mm -hmm. if I came home and I said, well, you know, as a Mexican American, then my parents can be like, okay, hold on. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that is yeah. not what you are. Like maybe you have good friends that are, but no, no, no. That would be different than just saying, all right, that must be what's standing out for you right now, today, this week, this month, and maybe next month it might change. Our job is to just make sure you have all the information that you need from both groups to, to digest and have it all land the way it's going to land. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's, that's a big do or don't, depending on how you, <laughs> how you approach it. Okay, I love that. Yeah, there's there's a bunch. I think, you know, another would be um, I think I find this again a lot with families where one parent is African-American. I would say a don't is telling your kid that they're black, just like, hey, you're black. The world's going to see you as black. So that's what you are. It's mm. it's not enough of an answer, because what happens is, remember, I end up seeing those kids when they're teens. 
And so let's say their parents think, all right, I'm going to do you a service and I'm, I'm going to prepare you for the world because the world is going to see you as black. And so I'm telling you, that's what you are. But then that kid is going to school and that kid then meets other people who have, you know, two black parents or they meet a peer that's like, oh, that's your that's your parent. Oh, well, then you're not really this. And oh, you didn't say that you had that parent. Why are you hiding that? And then the kid's like, wait, no, my, my parents said to just say that I'm black. And they realize, oh, there's nuance to this. Um, there's specifics and there's, you know, more to it that I wasn't prepared for. So I, I understand the goal when parents do that, you know, they're, they really are saying, look, the world is going to treat you a certain way. And that is undeniable, right? But but the truth is there needs to be that nuance in there too, so that that kid is ready to respond when someone says, ah, oh, man, you got a white parent too, whatever. And then they can still have some response because they were prepared for mm -hmm. that experience. You know what I mean? They're not going to mm -hmm. be surprised by like, wait, I thought everybody would just expect, accept me the way my parents have, you know? That's mm -hmm. a really good mm -hmm. point. One that I haven't even thought of myself, honestly. <laughs> that's why you have the doctorate and I am just an undergrad student. <laughs> um, do you, uh, next, on to the next question. Do you have, have you ever worked with uh, transracial adoptive families? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've had a couple. Um, well, definitely my private practice have had two and that's recent. And then in the past, certainly with um, the nonprofit I used to work for, we would meet a lot of kids who are translation transracially adopted. Yeah. Okay. And how do those dynamics work differently in a transracial um, adoptive families versus like a mixed race family? Yeah, it's, it, it, there's so much more, so much more to take into account, especially with this adoption piece. Um, adoption mm -hmm. is its own world in and of itself, because there's so much for a child to navigate, um, you know, through knowing, okay, I have birth parents and I have adoptive parents. There's just so much grief, so much trauma um, that really has to be acknowledged. And oftentimes they don't get a space to acknowledge the, the trauma and the grief because, you know, the world expects adoptive or adopted kids to just be grateful. Oh, aren't you lucky? Someone adopted you. You should, you know, thank them and you owe them your life and all that kind of stuff. And the kid's like, yeah, but also like, I don't know who my birth parents are and like what happened with that. And I want to process that. I want to talk about that. And then when you add that extra piece of perhaps this is a kid who is mixed race, but then adopted by two parents who number one, aren't their birth parents. And then number two, don't share the same racial background. That is a whole other level of who can I discuss this with? How do I process this with, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, even though I'm trying to say it in a nice way, like so many adoptive parents mean well, but we just see so many micro, racial microaggressions being directed at their adopted child and that just shouldn't be you know just this idea of like even just the colorblind stuff of like oh even though yeah you're mixed race with this or that you're just human and we don't see your color and you're our child now and that's all that matters and the kid's like oh, that's not all that matters because 
people are asking me a lot of questions when I go outside, you know, and can you help help me with that? Like, are you going to help me with that? And then there's just the other side of really not wanting, um, especially if it's, let's say, an African-American child uh, adopted by other parents, many times white parents, maybe they don't want the kid to identify with African-American culture because they have their own stereotypes that they have not processed yet, you know? Um, And so the poor kid is prevented from having cultural connections that they may want to have because their parents are like, don't do that. Don't wear your hair like that. Don't talk like that. Don't listen to that. You know, and the kid's like, well, I I look like them. Like, can I try to connect here? You know, so it's it's a problem. I have a, I have a brother who he's, he's dating this Indian male. And I was thinking, I was like, I was wondering like, what would you say to them? Cause when they're going to have to adopt one day probably, or if they mm-hmm. get a surrogate or whatnot, like what would you, what would you like recommend if they do end up like adopting, like say like somebody that's not neither one of their races or like that's neither one of their races. And then also they have like, like gay parents, like what would you, what would you, what advice would you give them? I mean, the, the one advice I would say is just remember your own marginalization um, because if they can stay, if they, as parents, you know, a gay couple can stay in touch with like, wow, these are all the ways society has marginalized me, treated me, expected me to behave, um, pushed me to do one or the other. I will make space to not do that to my kid. And I will mm. educate myself so that I can avoid doing some of those same things. I mean, I, you know, honestly, I think what we find is um, same sex couples, they are often over preparing and, and uh, more cognitively ready to adopt and raise a child that they, you know, want to honor and help thrive because they realize society's looking at us. Society's already expecting us to like ruin the children. So they often are, are much more prepared. But I think with this extra piece, um, making sure you remember, hey, you went through your own marginalization. Your, your child is going to have a, a marginalized experience, one being adopted and one maybe not sharing uh, a racial background with one or both parents. And how are you going to make space and safety for that, you know? I love that. So if you are comfortable or able to share, um, do you have any specific experiences uh, maybe that you use as like teaching points, Um, you know, experiences of of kids that you've worked with or parents that you've worked with um, where you you were able to like learn something from them or or teach something to other people through that? Do you have any of those experiences? Where working with a kid, I was able to teach Say it one more time. Just, I think I got it, but. Sorry, sorry. So basically, do you have uh, experiences with with children or with parents um, where you were able to um, like take something from that where you could, you know, then teach that to other people? So say, for instance, oh, I had this experience with such and such. This is a good example of what not to do, or this is a good example of what to do in this situation. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sh- Let's see. I definitely have a lot of those. I think the one that's popping to my head now, uh, the way that you were saying the question is a young girl where, well, let me put it this way. What I realized is 
sometimes you can read about certain theories, you know, maybe you both are, you know, done your schoolwork, so you can read about a theory, but then there's another thing to actually see it in action. Mm -hmm. And so this was a young girl who, again, was mixed race, and she felt a lot of um, just kind of insecurity in her own skin, just because a lot of people questioned her all the time. She, um, she would get a lot of questions about, is that your mother? Is that your father? You know, are you this? Are you that? You know, almost just like, why do you look like that? And she was already um, a quiet, she's very bookish little girl. So she's not mm -hmm. an expert and she's not running around campus like, hey, everybody look at me. So the more attention, she's just like, oh my gosh, I cannot take this. Um, and so working with her, again, we were applying this theory of, Let's really talk about what's happening because it's not your fault. You're not doing anything. It's the fact that society doesn't understand, like I said, that you can be in more than one category at the same time, that you may not look the way people expect you to look, but that doesn't change the cultural exposure that you have. So in allowing her to be able to talk about some of that stuff, and we also worked on like... Um, responses that she could give, but also responses that the parents could give. So this is where I say the theory comes in because getting parents involved in her journey of being marginalized made such a huge difference because she didn't have to do it by herself. She didn't have to navigate school every day by herself. What do I say? What should I say? Because now she's got two adults that are like, did they say it again? all right, tomorrow try this. And actually, how about this? And well, do they know that? And oh, let's go hang out with, you know, blah, blah family so you can get even more connected. And little by little, this young girl who, like I said, tried to avoid everybody, you know, she would like eat her lunch with her friends somewhere else. Um, she began like wearing, um, you know, kind of cultural attire. She would wear hair in different hairstyles. Um, she was just very very outwardly asserting, this is what I am and I dare you to say something. And I just remember myself sitting back like, whoa, that was like a big change in a short period of time. But I think it's because those parents were like, oh no, they, no, no, they don't, you know, no, they're not gonna tell yeah. my kid this. And we got you, we're, we're behind you. I mean, of course they're also like, we'll get your hair done and yes, we'll buy the stuff that you wanna wear. Mm -hmm. will help you assert yourself. And it just made a world of difference. I mean, in so many different ways. Love that, love that. Yeah. And from like a non-parent, or it could be a parental, but also like a friendly standard point of view, what like what kind of advice would you recommend that we give someone who is trying to figure out like their um, identity or mm. how, how do we help like children that might come to us? Like personally, I have nieces and nephews who are, I have nieces and nephews that are biracial. Yeah. Um, so like, how would, what would I say to them if they did come to, they, they came to me with their issues and were like, what do I do in this situation and stuff like that? I think one of the things, the main thing you could do is just affirm them. You know, if they come and say, oh, you know, auntie so-and-so, someone said, I'm not black enough, da, da, da. You get to be the auntie that's like, what'd they say? How dare they, you know? <laughs> Do they know me? Did they see me? Do you, am I your aunt? And they can, yes, yes, you are. Well then is this, you know, is that your whatever? And that's your grandma? Yeah. 
well then who's who's wrong you know kind of really yeah. just taking that approach of don't believe the hype like don't believe society don't let them convince you of something that you already know to be true you you already knew me all your life how all of a sudden are you not you know are, are you not allowed to be a part of this group and whatever ways that you can find to affirm a child when they have those moments that that's really what they're looking for if they ask or if they tell a story that someone said they didn't say this right or they don't wear the right clothes you know black people really do this or whatever you just get to affirm them and say no matter what they say you are you are still black and you are also whatever else mm -hmm. and nothing anybody says is going to change that and how you decide to assert it is up to you but nothing's ever going to change that you know mm -hmm. love that i love, love that well this has been an incredible interview uh before we close out dr jen was there anything else that you had on your heart anything else you wanted to share um you know anything like that um no i mean i i I think we covered a lot of it. As you can see, I mean, my my whole sort of goal is just making space. I am not interested in any kind of like battles and back and forth and who gets to claim what, because all of the, I don't know, claim fights and the gatekeeping and all of that, it, it really serves to, you know, I don't know, dis dismantle the power that we have. I feel like it's to, to gatekeep and fight in that way is still kind of a tool of white supremacy. And my goal is like to dismantle that, which means the only way you dismantle that is you make space for more things than they defined for you to have. So if they defined, these are the five racial groups that exist across the world, then our job is to say, uh, no, you're wrong. There's a whole bunch of other things. And also people can be in more than one group at the same time. And in that way, we kind of you know, dismantled this idea that really still kept them at the top in the most power, you know, with the most dominance. So when you look at it that way, we are, you know, we're defeating ourselves when we kind of do these, these lower level fights, if you, if that makes sense. <clears throat> it does. I love that. Well, we, uh, we really appreciate you coming on to share. Uh, Kenethia, was there anything else that you had to share? Are you, you good? Um, no, I'm okay, but it was very, like, honestly, it was helpful for me to be able to hear everything you say with, like, having mixed-race nieces and nephews and mm -hmm. being around so many mixed-race people, not just, like, the black and white, but, like, every mixed-race person I come in contact with, so very helpful and very insightful, so very, thank you so much. Oh, I'm glad to hear it, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Gained a lot of insight today, um, and I believe we forgot to tell you at the beginning, but we close out every single episode with just recommendations, so we just recommend something. It can be anything. It can be food. It can be a movie. It can be going for a walk. Um, Rachel has recommended body wash before. Like It doesn't matter what it is, um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and go first, and then okay. Dr., Dr. Jen will have you go last, um, okay. but what I wanted to recommend, I actually... I love a good 90 minute thriller or just a 90 minute action movie. Um, and I feel like we've kind of moved away from that. I think movies are all like two hours now for the most part, but I love a good old you know, 90 minute thriller. And uh, last night I watched one on Hulu and it was called Stalker. Um, and uh, it's starring, I'll give you, it's, it's on Hulu and it's it stars uh, Christine Coe and Vincent Van Horn. So if you want to look it up, you can find it using that. But it was shockingly good. It had it had a lot of twists and turns that I didn't expect. 
Um, and it was short, sweet, and to the point, and the plot stayed solid the whole way through. So if you get a chance to go check out Stalker on Hulu, if you love a good 90-minute thriller, that's uh, that's my recommendation for this week. Kanithia, what you got? Um, I have a song or an artist. Um, I just came across her on TikTok like two days ago. Um, okay. But she's called C China, C E C E E C H Y N A C China, oh. and she's a British rapper. She does British drill. Um, she actually has two songs right now. Yeah, she only has two songs right now. So you can hop on her, hop on while she's like up and coming. But she has the the song I'm talking about right now is called Last Laugh, and I absolutely loved it. It's just so catchy, and it's got she's got that accent too. Uh huh. So I just love it. I love listening to it. Mm. Yeah, UK rap is in a renaissance right now. Yeah, so. really. Yeah. Cool. Okay, I gotta check that out. Um, I think can I do two? Absolutely. Do as many as you want. So the first one that popped in my head really is I'm in I'm in South LA. Um, I think you're Nashville and Utah, right? So I don't know if you've even been to California, but my oh, yeah. first multiple times. Oh, you have? Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Well, my, my first recommendation is just going to be anything Issa Rae. So, oh. yes. <laughs> she, uh, out here in LA, she's got a coffee shop called Hilltop, and they've got like four locations. And um, my recommendation was going to be if anybody is, you know, close by or if it's on your bucket list of LA trips to go to um, her her coffee shop and get either a lavender latte or a pistachio latte. Um, I, I love them, but uh, you know, I don't have, I don't have coffee shop money to be spending like that every day, but <laughs> so anything Easter Ray that, and I think I will be starting the insecure uh, whole, you know, series again, just because I, I miss it. Um, but the so second, good. yeah, so good. And the, the second recommendation I would say is anything by Anderson Park. Um, so keeping with love the, Anderson Park. Yeah, keeping with the theme of of mixed race, he is um, African American and Korean, and he's just an amazing musician. And he's got so many iterations of his music. Whether it's him, you know, solo, then there's like the Free Nationals, then there's mm -hmm. Sonic, and I don't know, there's something else new, something with an X in it. So I'm like, I can't keep up with how many bands this man is starting, but he's a great. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Yeah, he has some amazing music. And his have you watched his tiny desk? Yes. Yeah. Oh man. So good. so good. What's right. his name? Anderson Pock. Yeah. Anderson when the, the Pock has two A's, P-A-A-K. Mm -hmm. I think there's a period at the end too for some yeah. reason. Yeah. yeah. Period right He's very good. And if you know Silk Sonic, Smoking Out the Window, Skate, all those songs. What was the first one? Leave the door open. If you know those ones, then that's Anderson Pack singing with, oh, with, uh, with Bruno with Mars. Bruno but Mars, yeah, yeah. he was around before that, and it yeah. sounds like me and Dr. Jen listened to him before he was cool. So yeah, and he's and he again. It's I my my recommendations are very Cali because Issa Anderson's from Cali. He's mm -hmm. all his first albums are named after beaches out here. So yeah, yeah. Ventura. Yeah, Venice Malibu. Yeah, that's right, Venice Malibu. Yeah, mm -hmm. cool. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. And thank you for coming on the podcast, Dr. Jen. We really appreciated having you on. Uh, I learned a lot. It was an amazing experience to be able to have you on. So thank you for that. Thanks for and, having uh, me. Yeah. And thank you so much, Kanithia, for, for jumping on as a co-host. Excited to have you on and uh, looking forward to having you on more in the future. Of course. I want to come back.
Oh, for sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, that's it. So with that, we'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>